Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. Bill Gilday has lived a life full of passion for his music, his family, and his role as a music educator. In his early years of playing music in Ontario, he became an accomplished trombonist, performing in swing, Dixieland, and pop bands, as well as with the London Symphony. As with many a musician's story in the Musicians of the Midnight Sun collection, a series of serendipitous circumstances lined up for Bill to fall in love in and with the North, where he met his wife and life partner, Cindy. Bill went on to influence generations of youth over the decades with his ambitious choir and band programs at Mildred Hall Elementary School and at Sir John Franklin High School in Yellowknife. He and Cindy raised their daughters Leela and Carla and their son Jay in a rich musical environment. Both Leela and Jay have become distinguished professional musicians and singer-songwriters on the Canadian music scene, and Carla, a fine vocalist herself, an accomplished artist and graphic designer. Bill's passion for Canadian folk music led to his founding of The Gumboots, a six-piece group of musicians that featured Bill's vocal arrangements of classic Canadian folk songs, as well as their original songs. The Gumboots played innumerable live shows and recorded four CDs over a remarkable 25-year run. Bill's passion and hard work over the last 50 years of raising his family, teaching and performing music in the North is a laudable legacy unto itself, which continues to grow with the creative and professional accomplishments of his children. Today I am joined by renowned musician, composer, music educator here in the North, Bill Gilday. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks for having me on, Pat. My pleasure. Really good to have you here with all of the other uh, alumni, I guess. I wanted to make sure that I 
got your musical story of coming from the south and coming north. And so it's been interesting in getting these interviews because some of the musicians are born and bred here in the north and their whole experience has been in the north. And yet there's others who come up and bring their sort of musical talents with them and just through osmosis and interactions and all the rest of that stuff that sort of gets passed on to a lot of the other northern musicians and you did that in a huge way especially in your years as an educator that way if we could just sort of start right at the beginning bill if you could tell me what what year you were born just so that we have a, a chronological anchor point there and uh, maybe tell me about some of your early years where you grew up and also your first musical influences Okay, well, I was born in Toronto in 1947 and uh, went to school there in kindergarten, grade one. Moved up to Mississauga when I was in grade three and took some piano lessons. That didn't last long because I had a teacher who liked to wrap your knuckles. (laughs) And so what I did was I quit and I started improvising on the piano at home. Um, I can remember my mother going crazy with me playing the theme song to Peter Gunn with one finger. Doom, 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 about a million times. (laughs) So anyway, um, yeah, I went to school in Mississauga, Port Credit, for uh, about five or six years. And then big move came uh, when we moved up to London, Ontario. My dad got a job working for General Motors there. And it's kind of lucky for me because he actually had another job offer in a smaller town nearer to Toronto that didn't really have any serious music programs. Whereas in London, that was in the 60s, that was like a hotbed of every kind of music from the schools to the clubs to the the bands, you name it, to the orchestras. So I was really influenced by my dad's record collection in the beginning. I started playing the trombone at a school in Mississauga in grade nine, Lorne Park, and um, very quickly became interested in playing dad's records of marching band music, Dixieland music, and some light jazz collections. Let's put it that way. It was not heavy jazz. Hmm. So, uh, you know, this was in my grade nine year. I was going home after school and putting records on and, just learning to play by ear along with all these different artists. Sorry, Bill, can I hold you there? And we'll just rewind a little bit. Even before your family made the move to London, right? Uh, what kind of music were you hearing from the radio? And, you know, you mentioned Peter Gunn. I'm, <laughs> before my time, that was a television program, is if, if, uh, if I got it right. Uh, but uh-huh. yeah, I'm just, I'm just sort of interested in sort of what was... Um, because it was such a dynamic time coming out of from radio into television and trying to get sort of the music that's floating through the air. And so what kind of songs uh, can you remember getting? Well, I didn't listen to the radio much at all because we lived in a nice, it was a suburban area, but it was right on the edge of the wilderness. And I was a real outdoors kid and sports. I used to play hockey and soccer and all the time I'd be out you know, with my bow and arrow in the fields, doing a little hunting. (laughs) And so I didn't listen to the radio, and I only have a few memories of songs that caught my attention. I can tell you what they are. I remember I was captivated when I heard um, Johnny Horton singing um, in 1814, It Took a Little Trip. I don't remember that song. Yes, I do. 
along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. Yeah. So I was I was like about 10 at the time, I think. And I, for some reason, decided I wanted to learn that entire song. So I, I think I got a 45, got my dad to buy me the 45, and I'd put it on at home until I could memorize it. And then I'd walk around town singing, <laughs> singing that song. And um, another song that caught my ear was The Locomotion. It was very catchy, and so I learned how to sing The Locomotion. But very, very few listening experiences translating into me learning anything from the radio. Honestly, I, I can hardly remember listening to the radio. I didn't have a radio in my room, and Dad had his hi-fi set out in the living room, and more often than not, he and Mom were playing opera and marching band music and that sort of thing at like high volume. Dad was really high volume <laughs> listener. <laughs> the full experience. Yeah. Yeah. So playing trombone at the school was just a, you know, a beginning band program. I don't have really fond recollections of that, but the guy did okay. Cause I stuck with it. And, and then when we moved to London, the next year, I jumped right into the music program, and then things just took off from there. What was the name of the, your music teacher that you had the first one? Do you remember? Yeah, his his name was Jim Murray, and he was not really a trained music teacher. What they did in, in those days, and we're talking the 50s, mm -hmm. is they would take guys out of the military bands after the war and say, okay, you're going to be a music teacher now. <laughs> so Jim Murray was um i don't know he was probably in his 50s and he had a temper oh my god they, we called him jungle jim murray <laughs> and um he he had a reputation the stories would go around about him throwing music stands across the room at kids and swinging a trumpet at somebody and missing and hitting the wall with the bell of the trumpet that kind of stuff okay and um anyway lucky for me he retired Sorry, that was my first year in grade 10 in London. The first year that the, my introduction to the trombone in Lorne Park was, um, I, I can't remember the teacher's name, but he was a decent guy and he got like, you know, he had a class full of about 45 of us and managed to keep us all learning. And then it was the transition to London where I had that interesting experience with the, the music teacher, Jungle Jim Murray with the temper. But I did like it. I didn't like school much at all. I wasn't really into academics. And I, the school in London was Central Secondary High School, which some of your listener, listeners may have heard of or gone to. It was a big school, and it had a large Jewish community, and it was all whites, I seem to remember. It was a really white school. But anyway, the music program is what saved me. It's why I went to school, just mm. to be part of that. Yeah, um, I'm with you there. Quick question: Why the trombone? Did you have a choice, or did somebody just sort of hand you a trombone and okay, say, "Okay, yeah, that's, this? that's that's a good one." Um, he gave us three choices, and then he would pick one. So, my sister had played the French horn a few years before me. She's older, and I had it in my head. I wanted to play the French horn, so I put down the French horn, and then the trombone, and then something else. I don't remember, but. The next day, the teacher came in and he said, well, I couldn't give you the French horn, but I can give you the trombone. And I was disappointed, but I said, okay. And within a couple of days, I'm taking the thing home and suddenly putting on records and playing along with the records. So I was hooked. Wow. So that's how I got 
assigned to the trombone. <clears throat> yeah, those kinds of stories where it's just sort of the circumstances or serendipity or who knows what you want to call it, but uh, an instrument lands in your hands and there you are 40 or 50 years later and it's still yeah, in your hands, right, you know? That's right, a, right. pretty amazing that way. You were obviously, I mean, you weren't training or anything like that, but you're picking out songs in the piano and so you grab a trombone and so it's just natural that you're you're going to grab tunes and melody lines by ear on your trombone too. So, yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, Dad had a couple of really neat Dixieland records. Remember, there was one called The Left Bank Bearcats and um, another one, Pee Wee Hunt. He was a trombonist. And I played along with those entire records and tried to learn all the trombone solos as they came along. And, you know, had some success with that. That's <laughs> well, a great, great way to learn is playing along with records. I mean, so many of us, uh, even before formal training and everything like that. And that Dixieland stuff, from experience, I know I dived in with into the deep end with the Dixieland band in Vancouver in a club one night. And oh, boy, yeah. they kicked my butt <laughs> right out of that <laughs> club. Man, that is some serious music that you really have to know your stuff and, and, and feel it as well. So, I mean, for you to be you know, catching even some of the solos uh, that you were learning off your dad's records is like, that's uh, very commendable, that's for sure. So you're in London and you got the trombone in your hand and you're you're learning songs by your, you know, at home and stuff like that. Um, let's, let's just... And then learning, learning to read music in the high school program. Yeah. Um, you know, playing concert band music in grade 10. And... Um, I, I don't think we had a dance band in grade 10, but I also that year learned how to play the baritone. The baritone uh, gets a lot of great solos in concert band music. So Mr. Murray asked me to consider playing the uh, baritone so that I could learn some of these solos that he had in mind. So I did that. And um, that year went by pretty quickly. There's, it wasn't too eventful, musically speaking. I mean, I did play the trombone all the time in the band, but it was the next year that really changed my life because of the guy who came in and replaced Mr. Murray. The next guy who came in was um, named Jim Davey. And Jim was a young music teacher, really nice guy, just had a, a knack for teaching music to kids. And what he did, he said, okay, guys, we're going to start a dance band. And I go, oh, that sounds like fun. So the, on the very first day, he brought in an arrangement of um, the sunny side of the street. That was going to be our first tune that we would learn. And he had a good stand-up bass player, a good lead trumpet player, Dick Eustace, I remember him, um, and a handful of other instruments. We didn't have a full 16-piece dance band at the beginning, even though the arrangement was for a 16-piece band. You know, it was like a trombone here, a couple of trumpets there, a couple of saxes, bass and drums. I don't think we even had a piano. But he said, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get the bass player to start. I'll get him to start playing. Just doom, 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 doom. And I'm going, holy cow. This is really cool. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, because we all were able to read music at that point. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, saxes, you're going to bring in the melody now. So they go, da, 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 da. And I think he had sung it enough that we had the style, you know, the swing style. And 
it didn't take more than 15 minutes before we're all cooking away on the sunny side of the street. And it sounded just so awesome that, um, you know, I, I knew that there was something in there for me. Beautiful. And, and so that year we developed a half decent dance band and then the concert band carried on. And then my big break came the next year when Mr. Davey asked me to join his dance band. He had a professional union dance band that played every Saturday night at what's called the 401 Club down on the 401 Highway. So it was a full band. There were four trombones and the whole whole nine yards. So And he played lead trombone, and he put me on second trombone. So here I am playing with the big guns now, and I joined the union. I'm in grade 11, and I joined the musicians' union. And it turns out that there were only five of us in London who were playing trombone at a level that could be used in a professional setting. So I started getting calls from these other organizations, and I started getting work two, three nights a week, making 25 bucks a night, you know, in grade 11. <laughs> so wow. I, I felt pretty good about that. And um, also got on with the summer concert band in the park series with Phil Murphy. He was a big band director in London. So I played in his concert band during the summer series. And then I got on with this Dixieland band called The Aggregation. Their trombone player left town. And these guys had heard about me. Somebody must have told them that, you know, I could I could swing. So I started playing with them. And that was a great education because Wally Iwanski, the bass player, had played with Tommy Dorsey. His brother, Frank, was the lead trumpet player. And he had a real raunchy style of playing Dixieland. Like, he really knew how to play. The clarinet player was Tony Caminiti. And he was uh, maybe 60-ish. All these guys are in their 60s veteran Dixie players. They had a piano and drums. I don't think they had a banjo or a guitar or anything. So, you know, it's a standard six-piece Dixie band. And they got gigs. Every weekend we were out there at somebody's barbecue or party in the park or, you know, special event. And I was learning all of these Dixieland songs many of which I had actually learned on dad's records. So that's where, you know, I had a leg up there. At least I, I knew, <laughs> I knew a lot of these tunes already. Wow. And, uh, wow. I'll, so, I'll hold you there. I'll hold you there. <laughs> like a okay. A few questions sort of going back and forth. <laughs> Amazing. That's like a fairy tale musician's youth. That is yep. just, amazing. I was very lucky when you moved from the smaller town to London, and I'm, I'm thinking around that time as well. I mean, there was a lot of immigrants coming into the country. Were you around, like you mentioned Jewish people and stuff like that, but were you finding other sort of nationalities of... Uh... There were Italians, and I, I got called by a guy called Johnny Amato. He had a small band, like about a six or seven piece band, and they'd use those combo orcs. That, you know, they're arranged for various instruments and then you know, we, he, he would get gigs playing dances, basically, you know, down in the Polish hall on a Saturday night playing with Johnny Amato. And it was more music to read by, like he would give us the charts, and then lots of opportunities for, you know, solos, improvising solos. So that was my experience with this Italian band. And then the, the clarinet player in the Dixie band was an Italian guy, too. 
what was the repertoire? Were you playing the pop songs of the day or the, or the dance music from sort of post-Second World War? Where, I guess, in the dance band, specifically in the dance band and the swing band, what what, uh, what kind of songs were you playing and what were you, uh, were you drawing? Well, I guess, in, go ahead. In the swing band, it was very much arrangements by Neil Hefty and, um, you know, the, the, the American style of jazz, big band jazz. And the smaller bands tend to be polkas. There was a lot of polka music, tangos. Uh, I'm just having a hard time remembering all that. But Chatiges and the waltzes yeah, and all yeah. the rest of that stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, just the difference in the times too. Not so much from now, but... I mean, Not, back, back... We weren't playing pop music. We weren't, we weren't playing Beatles. We weren't playing um, folk music. It was, you know, more the dancing, energetic dance type music. And the, the crowds were usually you know, adults, maybe in their 40s and 50s and 60s. So it was definitely music that's going to be harking back to their youth during the war years. Yeah. As it would be for the musicians that you were playing with, as you say, those guys were that's right. up in their yeah, 60s and you were the you were the kid. <laughs> that's right. I know what that's like too. As a musician, I, I think it uh, really gives you a very sort of firm footing in those styles of music that preceded the popular music of the day, you know, and the right. stuff that's coming out of the radios and stuff like that. So you can actually, it's not too hard to sort of draw the line and stuff like that to figure out where different influences uh, came from. Um, and just the swing thing that you're talking about too. I mean, you talk about swing and it's, it's, uh, it's really sort of, you know, one of the fundamentals of being able to, to play that style of music. And, it was probably imprinted on the records that you played, like even before you even knew what swing was sure. or jazz was or yep. anything like that. And it's just a feeling that way. And I know for me, for me, even as a bass player, um, it wasn't until my first year of college, really, when I was down in Edmonton in my second year, where it was like I finally put it all together and it actually worked where there was a, a swing to my playing, you know, and whether you're the bass player or the trombone player, it doesn't really matter. That sense of swing is so, so important that way. But again, you would have learned from the masters when, when that music was being created, like you say, in those war and post-war eras. I guess I'm just sort of trying to sort of think about the different uh, ethnic musics that you might have been, uh, maybe not playing even, just sort of surrounded by and stuff like that. And um, the different cultures that were, were sort of coming into Canada at that time, if you remember any of that. I don't think I was directly influenced by other cultures in a big way. I was so taken with dad's record collection. Like we had all of the Glenn Miller music, for instance, I, I learned every Glenn Miller song that there was. Uh, I had three Tony Bennett albums. I learned to play every Tony Bennett song along with his recordings. And as an aside, five years ago, we went to New York and we were down near the stage after the concert because KD Lang was the big star and Cindy wanted to meet her. So we went down there and she met KD Lang and then we're leaving the building. Cindy says to me, Hey, did you see who was standing behind you? No, Tony Bennett. <laughs> oh my God. And she didn't even tell me. Oh, you know, the guy whose music I spent hours learning when I was a teenager. <laughs> and even just his voice, whether it was Tony Bennett or Sinatra or any one of those guys, and you talk about swing again or, or phrase yes. or phrasing. Absolutely. And those guys, masters, you know? So, I mean, as far as, you know, you're playing sometimes melodies. I mean, when you're improvising, 
in as well. Just having that really good melodic sense as well. So, wow, wow, that's a that's a very full <laughs> full education that you had there. Um, geez, where was I going to go after this? Here, so um, and so you're you're in London. That's pretty close to the Toronto thing. And we're talking. Are we talking mid '60s, early '60s here? Um, that, yeah, this is early '60s. Um, Let's see, I was, uh, I, I started high school in about 59, and I think I finished grade 13 in about 65 or something like that. So yeah, that was like the first half of the 60s that I was getting into all these bands in London. Obviously, you were a member of the union and making pretty good money. Thank you very much for going out and playing yes. on the weekends. And yep, your, your, your parents were cool with all of this? They're supportive? Oh, they loved it. They thought it was great. Yeah. I could even afford to buy myself a car. I, I had a couple of secondhand vehicles that I bought over the years to get myself around with. Uh, my first car was a 59 Chev with the big fins on the back. And that was, that got me through the, well, the mid sixties. I couldn't start driving till I was 16. So that would have been about 63. So I had that 59 Chev from 63 into maybe 67, 68 at which point I blew the engine for driving too fast, and I bought an MGB, a British Racing Green MGB. Yeah, I can see it now. <laughs> for my last years in London. I can see the trombone case sticking out of the, <laughs> the back seat. Or yeah. The, or the yeah, I went to all my side. gigs in, yeah. that, in that car. Yeah, yeah. Um, and most of your gigs in the immediate London area, or would you... Most of them were in London, and then the occasional gig would be in a town like... Uh, military base north of London or a small town south, you know, half an hour to an hour's drive away. But most of them were in London. Nice, 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 yeah. nice. You know, Jim, I'll just say that as an aside that Jim Davy, that band teacher, uh, he only stayed with it for about five years and then he quit. Like I graduated from high school and the next year he quit and became an Air Canada pilot and he just retired from that about five years ago. And he also just retired about two years ago, his big band that had carried on all these years. His big band is called Basically Basie. And you can see that on YouTube, I think, or, you know, it's out there somewhere. Really great big band. And um, one of the trombone players in that band was the guy that I played with. He was one of those five that I played with all those years in the various bands. And he's still at it, John Thompson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, incredible, commendable, all the rest of that stuff too. And, and to have, I mean, they, they wouldn't have been young men, but they fairly young men <laughs> uh, at the time that they were teaching you. But obviously they were you know, men of good character and driven. And, uh, and to just have that kind of influence as a young player, I know can make all of the difference in the world. That's for yep, sure. For sure. Yeah, yep, for sure. Did you keep in touch with any of these guys, like even after you moved north and stuff like that? Um, I did not. Uh, of course, there was no internet and stuff like that. So, no, I didn't keep in touch. It's only in the last few years that I've reconnected with them on Facebook and um, had a few Facebook chats and thanked Jim Davey, for instance, for the influence that he had on me and all that he gave me through getting me into his big band. So yeah, I've kept in touch in a small way in the last few years. When you were in London and you're playing a lot and uh, you're not able to get out and see too much, 
any any um, memorable concerts or or live events uh, besides the ones that you were playing at um, that within any style of music, I guess, that you remember? There was an R&B band that came up from Toronto uh, in the late 60s and with a front man who was a really showy guy. And I remember being blown away by that. He had some horn players doing the R&B stuff in the band. So I kind of got turned on to that sound, the Motown music and R&B music. During those high school years, I went to see Count Basie, and Woody Herman in London at big venues where you could wander around and wander right up to the stage and watch the bands from the edge of the stage. So that, that was hugely impactful in my mind, seeing Woody Herman and Woody Herman and the Herd and then Count Basie, you know, all of these guys <laughs> traipsing around the country playing 250 gigs a year, living out of suitcases, but man, could they play, you know what I mean? And, it's just that, that's their life and it's so incredible for me to be able to see that i missed out on seeing louis armstrong he he came to town and for some reason i missed that um and then i took a drive to detroit with a couple of friends in about 1969 or something and attended a concert at cobo hall big big venue in detroit that's where i saw art blakey's band Jimmy Smith on the Hammond B3. Uh, like there's a variety of artists. Nina Simone was there. That was a really impressive concert. And the people attending the concert were 50% were the black community. And man, those guys know how to dress and they, they love to wander up to the stage and, you know, shout out to their brothers on stage. <laughs> what a beautiful experience. Again, in 1969, I know that was the year because that was the year they landed on the moon. By now I was in the music program at Western. And uh, so I got out of high school and I, I didn't go into music right away. I made the mistake of going into sciences and maths and stuff. And it turns out I didn't like it and I failed miserably. So the next year, by the good graces of a few of the music professors who knew me through the bands, like I had been kicked out of Western and told I couldn't come back. <laughs> I didn't even write my exams. It was so bad. I skipped most of my classes. So anyway, they got me back into the music program. And uh, so that's where things started to take off. Right away, I got offered a position playing in the London Symphony as a bass trombonist. They needed a bass trombone player. So I got my first experience playing in a symphony orchestra. And, you know, those gigs were weekday rehearsals you know probably once a week on a tuesday night or something you'd go and rehearse and then you'd have a concert every month um so it didn't really conflict with my dance bands and other small combos that i played with but i i was really taken by the orchestral experience like i don't know have you ever played on stage with a large symphony orchestra pet uh, only once, and that was with the Edmonton Symphony, and it was a pops concert. You know, so we were doing. Oh, I think. Okay. I think they they brought in uh, Big Bird and uh, Oscar the Grouch or something like that, and uh, <laughs> and so I was the electric bass player. But I mean, my God, just to be in the middle of all of that sound was incredible. So well, that's the, that's the thing is being like it's not the same as listening to a recording. Like 
you're enveloped with the sound of, you know, 75 or 80 players and the strings are just amazing. You know, it's like, uh, it was, that, that was another, um, another big moment in my musical enlightenment playing in an orchestra. So I kept on playing in orchestras all the way through university. Within a couple of years, I became the principal trombone player for the London Symphony and had three years at that right before coming north. Beautiful. Um, I joined a rock band who needed an organist, so I learned how to play the Hammond <laughs> B3 and played in, in a rock band. Um, I don't know where the time, how I had the time for it all, but I did it. And then the, the university had an awesome concert band that I played first trombone in for th at least three years. And then um, much to the chagrin of the director, I chose in my last year at Western to join the, the music faculty choir, the student choir, great director. Harold Johnson was his name. And um, that was another kind of an awakening, singing in a really expert university choir with a great director you know, lots of different repertoire. So, you know, that was another dimension to my music education being in that. It's not the first time I'd been in choir. When I was in high school, I was in my church choir, the Anglican Cathedral in London. I had an excellent director named Elwyn Davies. He was modeled after the British Boys and Men's Choir. So it was a Boys and Men's Choir, and we sang all of the highfalutin Anglican music anthems and stuff. With, with a great five keyboard organ in the chancel. And, uh, you know, that was another fantastic experience. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of going no, random. No, no, this, this is all, this is all, this is all really, <laughs> really good that way because it, it uh, sort of sets things up for, for later years. Um, let's go back to your rock band. What, what kind of songs were you playing in your rock band when you were playing the B3 organ? Okay, that was the, that was the pop stuff. That was Tom Jones and that was Beatles and that was you know, the pop songs of the the late 60s, early 70s, because I left London in 1972. So this all happened in the last few years before I left town. So I do remember, you know, it was a rock group and um, playing pop music of the day. I don't think I mentioned in this interview that I had one time on stage with Duke Ellington and his band. That was during the London Symphony years when I played with them in the late 60s, early 70s, Duke Ellington was traveling around North America with his band. And their gig was, they had arrangements that were for symphony orchestra plus the Duke's yes. band. So we, we got one of those gigs and I remember just sitting there in the trombone section at the back of the orchestra and to my left, 10 feet over there was Cat Anderson oh on God. trumpet. And then in front of him, Johnny Hodges on saxophone. And directly in front of me, about 20 feet ahead of me, was the Duke on the grand piano. And so we played, I don't know, an hour or so. And all of these soloists would get out of Duke's band and walk up to the front and play their solo and then wander back to their chair while we accompanied them on these arrangements. So that was, uh, that was a pretty magical experience to have that one time with the Duke. <laughs> I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of sort of being in academia that way, and it's a bit of a, a sanctuary in that you're going there and you're learning and you're being challenged and all the rest of that stuff, and it's a very uh, 
a safe and secure place that way, as opposed to uh, the the Count Basie Orchestra or any take take your pick of any rock band that way. And like you say, you're living out of a suitcase, and at the end of the tour, you're basically you have what little money you have left, and you're homeless. Um, so, yep. yeah. <laughs> so you know, um, that that kind of thing. Um, and I guess this maybe sort of comes in. You're going through all of these explorations of different kinds of of music through your college college university years was there was ever a, a point where um that was uh i wouldn't say a calling but it's like the life of a quote-unquote professional musician that way even though you're already you already are but you're playing gigs and you're still in academia that way but that i mean that 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 pursuit if, if you know what i'm trying to get at um of, of being of being on the road or well, being you know, a, a studio recording musician or, or something like that well, that was my goal was to be a, a working trombonist, and I I even outright said I did not want to be a music teacher. Like I was at at the faculty of Western, um, a big part of it was the music education department, and most of the kids there were in it to become music teachers. And I stated outright, I said I don't want to be a music teacher, and that's why I took the composition and the performance route, and uh, didn't do a lot of the education courses that the other kids were doing. And uh, one piece that just popped into my head that I should have mentioned from the high school years is when when I was in grade 12, a guy called Malcolm Hines and myself, we were in Central High School together. We wanted to expand on this thing about the, the dance band because uh, Malcolm's father had had a dance band in England when he was young. And so we got this idea that we were going to look around all the high schools in London and find the best players and form a, a 16-piece dance band. And we did. So uh, we got these guys together and bought a bunch of charts and bought some of those cardboard fold-out music stands so we'd look like a real band and started rehearsing in school gyms and music rooms for a month of Sundays kind of thing until we had enough repertoire. And then we started getting high school dances, like the prom, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, playing for our own age group, which seemed to go over quite well. And also we played at the Western Fair, which uh, is in London, Ontario. So that was uh, that was a fun time. The second trombone player was named Gary Morton. And he went on to be the chief arranger for the RCMP band in Canada. And more recently, he's retired and he's got a show band that he takes around to weddings and whatnot. I've seen him on the internet. And so he's still at it. He he ended up going to um, Berkeley. Yeah, he went to Berkeley. And that's where, he, that's where he learned to be an arranger. Became the RCMP's main arranger. I ran into him once when uh, I think it was in Ottawa and that band was playing. So I, I went over and saw the band and then came up afterwards and we had a chat about his career and, uh, mine had fallen away from being a performer to being a music teacher. Yeah, so Gary, I don't know if he's still at it, but you know, that was another interesting experience. Forming our own dance band, like an like an all star high school dance band. <laughs> Those would have been early television days. Did you ever get into a television studio with those huge yes. huge cameras and stuff like yes. that? Um, yep, I do remember that. I can't remember exactly which band it was. I don't think it was the Dixie band. I think it was maybe a dance band. It might have been Jim Davies' dance band. 
And I remember being in the studio for like three hours and it was hot and the lights were bright and we had to do take after take after take. <laughs> it's not exactly a fun experience. And, um, and then there was the uh, Tommy Banks experience, which was a whole different experience. That was fantastic. Um, that's 1972. Do you want me to jump to that year and tell you what went, what went on there? Sure. The year that I left L London, I, I came out west to get married. I had met Cindy the year before when I took a trip up north and ended up for three weeks out in Fort Ray. And um, I don't know, did I ever tell you this story of how we met? I could make it pretty short. Please do. Yeah. So there was this anthropologist in London who wanted to take 15 people to the north, and he got a grant just to spread out um, around the lake into about five different communities and spend a couple of weeks. Each of us spend a couple of weeks in one community and then come back to London and write some findings about how the Aboriginal people are living and, you know, what our experiences were. So anyway, we came into Yellowknife on a beautiful day. It was like June the 19th, 1971. And um, they took us over to Bobby Overvold's place down on 54th Street up on the rocks. And they had a picnic for us. And then they took us down to the float base. And old Mr. Erasmus ferried us across by groups of four and five to Jolliffe Island, which became our first home in Yellowknife. So we camped out on Jolliffe Island the first night. And we're all dazzled by the sun going down and coming back up a couple of hours later. And it was during that time that we all chose the community that we were going to spend two weeks in. And I didn't know one from the other. So I said, well, I'll take, you know, whatever's left over. What I didn't know is that people were vying for the places that you could fly to. <laughs> so I ended up with the place that you had to go down the dusty old highway to, which was Fort Ray. <laughs> and uh, so the next day, we had our chance to go uptown and walk around Yellowknife before being taken to our communities. And I was walking around town and I bumped into a lady called Phoebe Nahani. She was from Simpson and she was the liaison for the anthropologist to make his connection with the communities. She was um, an indigenous woman and she was chatting with another indigenous woman in the lobby of the Yellowknife Inn. So I went over and was introduced to this very nice young lady and then an hour later I'm driving down the highway in a pickup truck and taken to Fort Ray and dropped off at a trailer. There was a teacher leaving town who had left the trailer for the anthropologist's group. So I went in with two other guys. There were three guys and we went into this trailer and I'll be damned if it wasn't Cindy's trailer. Oh, wow. <laughs> So you talked about serendipity. Mm -hmm. I was, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> it all lines up. And uh, so anyway, when she came back, these other two guys, their eyes started bugging and they started going after her big time. <laughs> and I was a shy kid and I, I just kind of stayed in the background and I had my classical guitar with me and I was trying to learn how to finger style and play some classical guitar stuff. So after about two days, I, I went and spent, some quiet time by Marion Lake and took my guitar and Cindy came and she sat down. So, you know, that was the beginning of a, you know, something clicked there. 
And she had to leave town within two days. She had, you know, volunteered her trailer. And so we were sleeping on the floor in the living room and one guy on the couch. And the night before she left, she came in and she lay down beside me and gave me a kiss and said goodbye. Beautiful. <laughs> this concludes part one of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Bill Gilday. You can scroll through the show notes to listen to part two. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening.